Lord, that's more than just a song. That's the truth. You are life and breath and everything else. We are wholly dependent upon you, and you are a good God, a faithful provider, a steadfast friend, an awesome God. And we thank you today that we can gather in this place. It's so wonderful to think that all over the world today, there are people who are calling on the name of Jesus. They're lifting up your name. And we get to join our praise with them. And Lord, I don't know what your day is like today, but I hope that when you look down upon this group of people here at Mountain View Church, that you're going to be blessed today by the praise that we offer, by the obedience that flows out of our lives, by the way that we live and serve you here in Oakdale and wherever it is you take us, even to the nations of the world. Thank you for your word. You didn't leave us with no direction. You came and spoke. And those words have been recorded. And every time we open up this book, we hear the voice of the God we love. So God, let this be your time now. These people don't need to hear from me. We all need to hear from you. So God, let it be so. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes that see. Give us hearts that believe. And we'll thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want to say thanks for letting Carla and I come today. It's been really a blessing. Um, I'm not just going to say this. Carla and I get around a bit, and I'm just going to tell you, you guys have a very special pastoral team at your church. I hope you know that. And one of the things I look for when I come in, when Carla and I come in to minister in churches, how do the people talk about the pastor? And how does the pastor and the staff talk about the people? And I'll tell you, man, yesterday was a joy to hear Ron and Clifton and Mitch and uh, Dan was there and Randy was there. And I know Matt couldn't make it. and There were probably some others who couldn't be there. But to hear those guys talking about how much they love this place. And when a pastor comes and says, I don't want to come home at the end of a Sunday, then I know something very special is happening in that place. So on behalf of pastors everywhere, I want to say thank you for loving these guys the way you do. And I want you to know they love you in return. And uh, Ron, thanks for this privilege. We got to stay at the, uh, the uh, Spear Hotel bed and breakfast last night. It was really fun. And uh, they're great people to be with. So thanks for letting us be here. I also want to introduce some very special guests. You know, over the 35, 36 years we were at Golden Hills, I had a couple of secretaries who were there for almost the whole ride. And uh, they were more than secretaries. They were good friends and still are. They are both here today. Uh, Rian Huddleston with her husband, Rock, who just recently moved to Oakdale. And Martha Fascio and her husband, Ralph, who came all the way out from Antioch, Brentwood area. So thank you for being here today. I was... Uh, privileged through the years so far to have a wife who helps me be better than I am and two secretaries that helped me do what I couldn't do on my own. So it's kind of fun. But the church is a team. Um, a number of things. Uh, 
I could share today by way of introduction. I just want to say a couple of things. Um, First of all, even after all these years, I'm not really a polished speaker. I have habits. My voice cracks from time to time. I tell people I'm still going through puberty with my son. Uh, We went through it together. Um, I occasionally have this habit of doing this. (laughs) I don't hope it's not a distraction. I had a lady say to me once, Pastor, it is so disturbing when you constantly are hitching your pants up. And I said... I said, ma'am, how much, how disturbing would it be if I didn't hit so much? So, yeah. Anyway, she, <laughs> so anyway, those kind of things. The other things I want to say is this, and it may sound a bit odd, but um, I really love Jesus. I love him. I owe my life to him. And if you're a Christian, so do you. And so getting to share any of his word is a great privilege. And uh, that's why if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to open up to one of my mentors, a guy by the name of Peter. I've been sharing recently in churches the message of the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You and I are living in a hopeless world. Without Jesus, there isn't any hope. But with him, there's always hope. In fact, Peter said he's a living hope. You know, the older I get, the fewer mentors I have because most of them go on to be in glory. So my mentors are becoming people like Ezekiel and John and David. And one of them is Peter. And one of the reasons I love Peter is because I think he's so much like me. He's a very imperfect man whose life was radically changed by a very perfect Savior. And uh, it took Peter a while to catch on to things. He wasn't overly educated. Um, He was a fisherman. He's a blue-collar guy. But boy, when he fell in love with Jesus, everything changed. Can you imagine God uses this old fisherman? By the time he writes 1 Peter, he's using this old fisherman to encourage Christians all over the empire. In fact, he names in chapter 1 five provinces of the Roman Empire that he was encouraging these Christians. These people were living in a pre-Christian world. Remember, they are coming to Christ, but the world isn't used to Jesus at this point. They're, they're not even familiar with Christianity. There was all kinds of oddities that were put upon them, and people misunderstood them and hated them and marginalized them. Here's the people with a message of hope, and yet most people wouldn't even give them the time of day. They were being persecuted. You and I are living in a post-Christian world where the claims of Christ and the effects of Christianity are beginning to wane in many, many places. There was a time when I was growing up, even as a non-Christian in New England where I grew up, we didn't have stores open on Sundays. Almost everybody went to church. Didn't mean they all knew the Lord, but there were influences. We could pray in school. Can you imagine that? I remember starting school with a prayer. Where did those things go? We're living in a post-Christian world. But you and I have a hope that the world is desperately in need of. And Peter talks about that hope. In fact, in one of these passages in 1 Peter 3, where we're going to be looking today in verses 8 through 17, he's going to talk about the hope of a blessed life. But this blessed life looks very, very different than what most of the world says it looks like. And I want to read these for you. Peter says it better than I. Spirit of God, speaking to Peter, had him write this down. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, as we're coming into the summary section, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. 
Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let's pray for a moment. Father, there's so much I need to hear today. So much you have to say. So God, as this word opens up, you speak to us. Because every single one of us wants to live the hope of a blessed life. But that blessed life looks so different sometimes than what the world says it is. And so we miss the very blessings you pour out from heaven. And I ask today, God, in this time together, we'll leave this place knowing how truly blessed we are even in the midst of all the trials of life that we face, that it's God who is at work to will and to act for his good purpose. And we'll thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's the most requested thing of God. Lord, I want you to bless. I want you to bless. And so we pray. Uh, Lord, I want you to bless me. I want you to bless my spouse. I want you to bless my kids, my job, my vacation, my home, my health. Bless my finances, bless my surgery, bless my marriage, bless my family, bless my business, and on and on it goes. We ask God to bless things all the time, don't we? And it's not wrong to do that. God loves to bless us. But sometimes the blessings we need or the blessings that God wants to pour out on us are very different than we think. In fact, they're often things we would never choose. When Jesus gathered the multitudes who were seeking to be blessed, do you remember what he told them in Matthew 5? We call them the Beatitudes. But how shocked the people must have been when they heard what he was saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the children of God. How about this one? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear what he told them? You're blessed when you are poor, you mourn, you're meek and hungry, you're thirsty, merciful, you're pure, you're peacemakers, and you're persecuted. That's the blessed life. 
Is that what you signed up for? What we want is usually the opposite. We want to be rich and joyful, strong and filled, respected, peaceful and pain-free. And God sometimes gives those things in season. But God's view of living a blessed life here is very different. That's why Peter wrote to a group of persecuted believers to help them to see how blessed they really were. And Peter told them that how they responded to their enemies and how they responded to the pagan world around them was the key to the blessing he wanted them to experience. And so he told them in chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. And then he goes on to highlight five Christ-like virtues that Jesus demonstrated even in the midst of all of his suffering. They're right there in verse 8. Being sympathetic, loving one another, compassionate, humble, like-minded. And then he said, don't repay evil with evil. Repay evil with good. Because you see, there are three ways that people respond to good and evil. There are three levels of response. There's the level where people return evil for good. You may be living a good life, but evil comes. There's evil in the world. Some people return evil for good. That's the satanic level. He's behind all of that. And then there's the level where people return good for good and evil for evil. You're good to me, I'm good to you. You're bad to me, I'm going to get even. That's the human level. But then there's the level where people return good or blessing for evil. Evil is done to them and they return good in return. That's the divine level. And only God can do that. And he continues to do it in the lives of people just like you and me in whom he lives and desires to display his glory and his goodness to the world. And when you do this, Peter said, you'll be a blessing and you'll inherit a blessing. But that word blessing that he uses is a little different sometimes than we think. It doesn't mean that everything's going right. In fact, the word literally means to be spoken well of. So when you live like this, Peter said, you're going to become worthy of praise just as Jesus became worthy of that praise because it's not you they're going to be praising. It's the Christ in you that they're going to see. So the blessed life does not mean easy or free of pain or safe or trouble-free. Is anybody here living a life like that all the time? I don't know of any. There are many joys and blessings that God bestows upon us. It's not all drudgery, believe me. People once asked me, can I, can I still have joy if I'm a Christian? I said, man, I have joy because I'm a Christian. But it's not all easy. A blessed life may be full of trials and problems and pain, but it's a life lived out and lived out for Jesus. A right life, regardless of your circumstances. And here's, here's the thing. It's a life, Peter says, that God will speak well of. That's what it means to be blessed. That God is speaking well of your life, no matter what your circumstances. Jesus lived such a life. And now, in us, he wants to do the same. Because those who choose to follow Jesus, Peter said, have the hope of a blessed life. So how do you experience that blessed life? One thing I love about Peter is he makes things simple. He said, you turn from evil and you do good. And you revere Christ as Lord and live out our hope. Christians can experience the hope of a blessed life when they turn from evil 
and do good. Finally, all of you, he said in verse 8, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil, their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. Dr. John Perkins is a black man, born in 1930. Grew up in the segregated south of Mississippi. He's a pastor, civil rights activist. He's a Bible teacher, philosopher, author, community developer. He has 13 honorary doctorates from some pretty prestigious universities and colleges. He served on the boards of World Vision, uh, Chuck Colson's Prison Fellowship, just to name a couple. I met him one night on a stage at Wheaton, at Wheaton College in uh, Illinois. I was scheduled to be a keynote speaker that night for an event. I had no idea Dr. Perkins was going to be there. He was going to share some preliminary remarks. I'd never met the man. I come up on the stage. I sit down. I look to my left, and I go, whoa, man, that's Dr. John Perkins. And I leaned over to him, and I said, a very distinguished elderly black man. I, le I leaned over to him. I said, Dr. Perkins, wow, it is so nice to meet you. I didn't know you were going to be here. Everybody in this auditorium, including me, would rather have you speak tonight. And I'll never forget this. He just leaned over and he said, but God has chosen you for this night, my son. So, wow, what a man. Anyway, 2009, he and a young white professor named Charles Marsh co-authored a book called Welcoming Justice. Charles Marsh said he was a little unsettled about working on this project with Dr. Perkins because his grandmother was a fairly well-known ardent racist who hated black people. And he wasn't sure how Dr. Perkins would receive all of that. His grandmother was one who uh, said that Martin Luther King Jr. was a dangerous troublemaker and that all blacks were better off under slavery. This is where things began with their relationship. And he said Dr. Perkins' response was amazing to him. He said to him, uh, Charles, what does your grandmother grow in her garden? He said, what did you say? Oh, <laughs> What does your grandmother grow in her garden? Does she grow cucumbers, squash, mint, tomatoes? I have the sweetest tomatoes in my garden this summer. You can eat them like apples. Your grandmother like tomato sandwiches? I bet she does. Let me ask you another question. Does she like blueberries? I love blueberries, Perkins said. In great detail, he described all the ways he loved to eat the blueberries. Freshly baked over ice cream and blueberry pie. I always keep blueberries in my refrigerator. He said, I'll tell you what, when we get to the house, I'm going to give you a bag of blueberries, best you've ever eaten. I want you to take those to your grandma and you tell her they're from me, a gift from me. Charles Marsh said he stood there stunned. He said he called it a gift that makes you a new kind of person. Transformed him. What did Dr. Perkins do in the face of the evil of racism? He didn't give a an apologetic on anthropology. He didn't talk about the evils of racism. He didn't say how all men are created equal and your grandmother shouldn't feel that way. He simply said, what's she grow in her garden? I bet you she likes blueberries. Why don't you take her some from me? Tell her I'm praying for her. You see, he turned from evil and he did good, just like Jesus did.
You know, I've had people tell me that the Jews crucified Jesus. You know what I tell them? Jews didn't crucify Jesus. I did. I crucified him. It was my sin that put him on the cross. You know what he said while he was being spiked to that wood? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, that's the way Jesus lived. And Peter said, that's the way God wants you to live in the face of all the persecution you're facing. In the face of all that evil, he said, I want you to return good. Just before that, in chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, listen to what Peter wrote, verse 21, for the, about the example of Jesus. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, Lord willing, in a few minutes we're going to come to a table where Jesus said, every time you come here, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that. He didn't hurl his insults. He didn't retaliate. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Do you know how that's helped me over the years? There's people in our community who have said some awful things about me that just weren't true. People would come to me and say, do you know this person? Yeah, I know them. Do you know what they're saying about you? They're saying this, 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 and this. What are you going to do about it? I said, nothing. I don't need to do anything about it. I just need to give it over to God and let him handle it. And you tell those people that I'm praying for them. People, I'm no more a saint than anybody else, but I'm learning from Jesus how he wants us to respond in the face of things. And he said, if you will return good for evil, you'll be blessed. In fact, you'll inherit a blessing. Turn from evil and do good. To map it out more specifically, Peter quotes one of the great Psalms of David, beginning in verse 10, Psalm 34. Carla have verse 3 inscribed in our wedding rings. Glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. But Psalm 34 is a lot more than just that one verse. This was a Psalm that David wrote in the midst of his own trials and suffering. And Peter quotes it here, in beginning in verse 10, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Warren Wiersbe commenting on this um, once said, Peter quoted these statements from Psalm 34 because it describes what God means by good days. They're not necessarily days free from problems, for the psalmist wrote about fears and troubles and afflictions and even a broken heart, verse 18. A good day for the believer, Wiersbe wrote, 
a believer who loves life, a good day is not one in which he's pampered and sheltered, but one in which he experiences God's help and blessings because of life's problems and trials. It's a day in which we magnify the Lord, David said, where you experience answers to prayer, where you taste the goodness of God and you sense the nearness of God. Carla and I have a daughter who in her 20s was grabbed out of our kitchen at gunpoint by a burglar who broke in, held a gun to her head. I'll spare you all the details of how that turned out, but I'll tell you this. You know what she told us at the end? She said, Dad, Mom, I experienced God's presence in a way more powerful than I've ever known before. Sometimes you have to go through that to experience things. And David said, if you see things from God's perspective and know his love for you and that everything he does is for good, you'll understand why David called these things a good day. Not because you like what you're going through, but because what you learn about God in the midst of that is irreplaceable. So Wiersbe said, the next time you think you're having a bad day and you hate life, read Psalm 34. You may discover you're really having a good day to the glory of God. Peter told these Christians that their trials were creating an opportunity to love life and see good days. Not only that, but Peter said, if you turn from evil and do good, um, the other thing you need to do is you'll have a blessed life when you revere Christ, he said, and you live out this hope. This is the life that God speaks well of. Look what he said in verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Fear God live hope. Ken Hutcherson uh, was a Super Bowl linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys. He was born in Alabama, grew up hating white people. In fact, when he went to the University of Alabama, he was a scholarship baseball player and a football player. He had to choose between the two, and he said, I chose football so I could hurt white people legally. That's what he told me. And he said, man, I was a terror even to my own teammates on the field. But then Hutch met Jesus, and everything changed. I met him at a team Bible study for the Seattle Seahawks in 1976. He came from Dallas to Seattle in the expansion draft. And God used him, and a man named Sherman Smith, who is still a good friend of mine, and he was a running back for Seattle, and my roommate and best man at my wedding, he used those men to lead me to Jesus. Hutch was one of my early mentors. Um, we'd talk a lot on the phone. He would say things I was sharing with Ron yesterday and with Mitch. He would, uh, we'd be talking on the phone. He'd say, guess where I was today? I said, Hutch, I have no idea. Where were you? He says, I was in the Oval Office with George Bush for an hour. I said, really? What'd you tell him? Oh, you know what I told him. (laughs) He'd call, guess where I was today? I said, I have no idea. He said, I was at a hunting lodge in Wisconsin 
My roommate was Rush Limbaugh. Oh, really? What'd you tell him? You know what I told him. He ended up leading Rush Limbaugh to Christ, ended up doing the wedding for he and his wife. And on and on it went. James Dobson, so many other people you've heard of, Hutch has influenced their life. God opened extraordinary doors for him. This was the guy that lived all or nothing for Jesus. This is my example from the very beginning as an early Christian. He began to mentor me. We'd be sitting in a Bible study. Hutch would be across from me. We'd be sitting around in a circle in their living room. And I was sitting on a couch. I'll never forget this. Sitting on the end of a couch, surrounded by people in this Bible study. And Hutch is right across. And he's got his dog, Warlock, with him. Warlock was a Doberman pincer. This thing was huge. And it was well-trained. And he said, tonight we're going to learn lessons about what it means to obey Jesus. And he said, I want you to remember this. So this is what Hutch did. This is the kind of mentor he was. He says to Warlock, the dog, Warlock, stand. Dog stands up immediately. Go love Larry. The dog walks across, starts licking me in the face, snuggling up to me. And he goes, Warlock, heal. The dog sits down right in front of me. Then he says, Warlock, don't let Larry move. And the dog's just sitting there. I'm not kidding. I raised my finger off the edge of the couch, and that dog's teeth were at my throat. I slowly put my finger down, wouldn't you? Warlock, heal. The dog comes right back. Sit. Sits down right next to Hutch. Then he looks across to us. He goes, that's obedience. That's the way you need to obey Jesus. When he speaks, you don't question. You just do whatever he tells you to do. That's what it means to be an obedient Christian. You don't forget lessons like that. (laughs) This is the guy who mentored me. Ken went to be with Jesus in December 2013. We were two weeks apart in age. I talked and visited with him a number of times during his long ordeal with cancer. And what he told me near the end of his life was about the hope of a blessed life. By the way, if you'd ever like to read his story, he wrote about that pilgrimage in a book called Hope is Contagious. Ken Hutcherson, Hope is Contagious. I remember when he sent me the manuscript, he said, I want you to look over this book. Tell me what you think. And then he said to me on the phone, Larry, I thank God for my cancer. You'd have to hear him how he said it. I thank God for my cancer. Because it's given me opportunity to share my hope in Christ with people otherwise I never would have met. And then he said, Larry, I thank God for my cancer. Because prior to this, I was afraid of cancer. And not anymore. Now the only one I fear is Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. You have a relationship with God like that? That you thank God for what you're walking through because of what he's accomplishing through it and how you're knowing more of him than you otherwise would have known. That he's given you opportunities for kingdom impact that you never before would have had. That's the kind of fear and reverence and honor God was talking about through Peter. 
when he said, I want you to revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But you do it with gentleness and respect. That reverence for God is that you set him apart in your heart as Lord. You ever heard the old phrase, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all? People like Hutch had set Christ apart as Lord, so whatever he wanted was good for him. He didn't always like it, but he thanked God for it. When Peter said those words, he was quoting from Isaiah 8. When Isaiah was speaking to the Jews of Jerusalem who were terrified at the approaching Babylonian armies. Remember the song, Mitch and the team just let us in? He's the God of angel armies. So Isaiah said to the people, Isaiah 8 verse 12, don't call conspiracy everything the people call conspiracy and don't fear what they fear and don't, don't be dreading it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He's the one you are to fear. He's the one you are to dread. Yeah, the Babylonians are scary and you don't know all that will happen, but don't be afraid. Fear God. He's the Lord Almighty. In fact, the phrase was, he's Yahweh of the armies. He's controlling Babylon. He's controlling the armies. He's controlling you. And guess what? Whatever you're facing, God's in control of that too. So he said, don't be afraid. You who trust God may die in the battle, but no harm will come to you. Did you hear that? You may die in the battle, but no harm will come to you. Do you realize today that if you're a Christian who has Christ living in you, you cannot die? So our greatest fear of humanity has already been eliminated. Your body can die, but you never will. Remember what Jesus said at the tomb of his friend Lazarus to the grieving sisters in John 11? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he said to her, do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe. Oh, really? Then take away the stone. Lord, he's been in there four days. Didn't I just tell you? I'm the resurrection and the life. Your brother's not dead. In fact, you want to see him? Lazarus, come out. And he walked out of the tomb. Take off those grave clothes. He won't be needing those. Our circumstances are scary. Sometimes we don't know all that's going to happen, but God said, don't be afraid. You fear God. You revere Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to tell people the hope that you have. And remember, he's in control. Nothing is going to happen to you outside his control. Nothing. You may die in the conflict he puts you in. But no harm will come to you and glory will come to him. People, how have martyrs through the centuries faced their death singing God's praises? How do people like Paul write, after all he went through are light and momentary troubles are producing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know, the real question is, do you want to know Jesus like that? Do you want to know him that well? That you would be willing like Paul to say, I have the hope of the resurrection, 
but I also have the hope of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Because Paul said in Romans 8, if you share in his sufferings, you will also share in his glory. You see, there's a whole side to the blessed life that I have a lot to learn about. But I want to learn it. And Peter said, while you're learning those lessons in the school of hard knocks and everything that's just called life as life, then remember this. Sometimes the times when you think you are the least blessed, you are actually about to experience the greatest blessing. It's hard to walk through it, but you won't do it alone. You'll have a life where you inherit a blessing that God says, I'm pleased with you. You know, I want to close by sharing this one little story you are probably very familiar with because it's a perspective that sometimes we need and it reminds me all the time. There is much joy in being a Christian. I don't want us to leave here today with doom and gloom. I'm just sharing you a perspective the world rarely has. It's the hope of a blessed life. But it looks so different. So many of us miss it because we're not looking for it. But we have no idea most of the time what God is up to. You remember the guy named Job? Righteous man, blameless man, the most righteous, blameless man in all the region. Satan comes before God one day and says, um, God says to him, where have you been? He says, oh, I've been roaming around here and there on the earth. You considered my servant, Job? God brought it up. You consider my servant, Job? Oh, yeah, yeah, Job. Yeah, yeah, he... He praises you because look at all the blessings, man. He's got the house, he's got the land, he's got the servants, he's got a great family, he's, he's got everything. Of course he praises you, but God, we both know that nobody praises you for you. In fact, take it all away and he'll curse your name to your face. God said, no, he won't. You can take all of it, but don't touch him. Take all of it. And you know what happened? Wham, wham, wham. He lost his kids. He lost his property. He lost everything. He was devastated left in financial ruin. And he continued to praise God. So Satan comes back again. <laughs> God says, Satan, where you been? Oh, roaming around on the earth, doing pro here and there. Have you considered my servant Job? God brings him up again. Oh, yeah, 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 Job. Yeah, he worships you still, but you only took his stuff. You didn't touch him. You touch him, I tell you. He'll curse it to your face because nobody worships you for just you. It's all about what you give. You take that away, they'll curse it to your face. No, you won't. You can't kill him, but you can do anything else. I don't know what kind of suffering he went through, but imagine satanic suffering where he can do everything but kill you. Even his wife was saying, why don't you just curse God and die? Great support at a time of need, don't you think? And Job certainly had his struggles, and he said to his wife, can we accept good and not the bad? Even though he slay me, yet shall I praise him. If you follow the story of Job through on, he had his struggles. He was honest with God. God does not want us to be just a bunch of Pollyannas. We can be honest with God about how we feel about what we're in. But in the end, he came back around. Remember what Job said at the end of the book? I had no idea, God, what you were up to or even what you were doing. Here's the point. So much of what we go through on earth has nothing to do with you or what's going on on earth. It might be what's going on in heaven. 
God's character and goodness was under attack by the evil one itself. As Satan was accusing God that he was not worthy of worship by anyone, they only worshiped God because of what they gave. With God's character under attack, he looked down upon the earth and he thought, have you considered my servant, Job? He praises me for me, not for the circumstances he's in. You know, I can't help but wonder sometimes when God's character is under attack in the heavens today, could God look down on me and say, have you considered my servant, Larry? He will honor me no matter what you put him through. Because it isn't about what I do for him. It's about who I am for him. Could God put your name in there? Well, I've got news for you. He might. In fact, he might have your name in there right now. And what you're going through may have more to do with God's kingdom and God's purpose and God's character than anything with you. But Peter said, if you'll do that, turning from evil and doing good and reverencing Christ and telling people the hope you have, you'll be a blessing and you'll inherit a blessing. And people, as far as I'm concerned, there's no greater blessing in, in eternity than that God speaks well of you. God, thank you for these reminders from the word that help us to see things in a very different light. I don't know what these dear people are going through right now, but I want you to know, God, we are blessed. We have food to eat, clothes to wear, houses to live in. Not one of us was on the street last night. We have blessings more than we can count. And we're about to remember one of the greatest of them right here at this table of communion. That we have a God who loves us. We gotta have a God who gave his son to die for us and to redeem us back from what we could not pay ourselves. And you've asked us in this simple time to remember. And Lord, I want you to help us to remember that sometimes when we're going through the deepest, darkest valleys, there's always more going on than we can see. The blessed life we seek sometimes is found within these things. We may never see the fullness of the blessing until we're with you. But in the meantime, just as Peter said and Paul said and David said, we can experience the inheritance of a blessing, of being close to God, to know that these things are not for nothing, that these trials and these setbacks and disappointments have a purpose bigger than we can see. And that one day, they produce a glory that shines to glorify you. So thank you, God. Would you put your hand of blessing upon the dear people of this church? The exciting times that they have ahead and many blessings that await. But some of those blessings will come disguised. May they in those moments be reminded that one of the great keys to blessing is responding rightly in those moments and having a life that God looks down upon and speaks well of, the hope of a blessed life. 
and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.